This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 22nd, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. Europe's trend toward restrictions on speech proceeds apace. And it's worth repeating. The impacts of their permission-based regulatory approach will impact U.S.-based companies and perhaps even your ability to speak freely on speech platforms as well. Cato's David and Sarah and Jennifer Huddleston comment. The United States is exceptional in at least one way in that free speech is built into the foundational documents that craft the United States of America. What do Europeans feel about the freedom of speech? Is it is it as much a value as it is here, though we have to question whether or not it's that much of a value here too, I suppose. Yeah. So this, this speaks to the difference in which the ways in which, especially in democracies, people view freedom of expression. It's Everyone sort of assumes they go together, but in other parts of the world, that, that it's sort of like, okay, yes, freedom of expression is important, but uh, there's more restrictions that might be put in place. And you can think about this in different ways across different countries. Especially recently, you've seen the emergence of laws that are going after hate speech, misinformation, disinformation, unlawful speech, especially in, in Europe under the Digital Services Act, but also under a, a law passed that just went, was implemented last year but also on individual nations, um, like in Germany, passing a law called the NetsDG law that many people say is could be just as easily implemented in somewhere like Russia or somewhere else like that, an authoritarian nation. So the relationship between free expression and democracy is more complicated outside the United States. And unfortunately, we're seeing the growth of restrictions, this sort of uh, more and more restrictions being placed on speech in democracies. Um, We're seeing research on that that shows that in the past decade or so, about 78% of new legislation on the issues of expression, 78% or so of these laws are restricting speech rather than expanding speech in democracies around the world. That's a startling number, a scary number, because it means we're moving in the wrong direction and toward what some have called a free speech recession. And that includes, like I said, the democratic world, not just the authoritarian nations in the world. And Jen, this has been going on for a decade. This has been going on for a while with some of the laws that David referenced. But I think it's important to recognize how this interplays with the U.S. debate over free speech as well. We've seen some in the U.S. call for similar restrictions, particularly around hate speech, even though they would raise these First Amendment concerns. And we can look to what's going on to Europe to see what the consequences for free expression might be, that it's even with a term like hate speech, you get into some very gray areas very quickly. There's not a a legal definition of what constitutes hate speech. And what we've seen in the cases of many of these laws is that they apply to a much broader swath of speech than many people initially presumed. Another area that we've seen this occur in, Caleb, I know you and I have talked about this in the past, is when it comes to youth online safety laws. Particularly the online safety bill in the UK is a real example of how this debate has really fueled each other on both sides of the Atlantic with certain state-level policymakers pointing to what's going on in the UK and certain UK policymakers pointing to what's going on in the states. Instead of really looking at the impact that proposals like the online safety bill would have not only on young people's speech, but on the speech of all internet users and on the privacy of all internet users. 
the consequences for speech in the United States if Europe continues, various European nations continues down this path, we've discussed this many times, that the implications for the United States, for actual functional free speech in, in the U.S. are not zero. Yeah, that's right. So thinking about um, the norms that are being established, Jen just mentioned uh, youth online safety, but you see, like I said, other areas, hate speech, misinformation, sort of all the sort of hot button issues in, in sort of content moderation and in the tech world, AI, what we see is that there's norms being set in Europe. And sometimes they might start as voluntary or optional, and then they become codified in laws. And then those ideas, those norms are looked at by our policymakers as, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could stop misinformation? Wouldn't it be great if we could stop hate speech? Of course, we have the First Amendment, but that's why we're seeing increasing amounts of conflict over these laws at the state level. You got multiple cases that are going to go to the Supreme Court this year that involve some of these issues about how much power governments, right now state governments, can, can place over tech companies and their social media content policies. But this is only going to continue, as, especially as people start ramping up for AI, which I know Jen has written a lot about. In some cases, there's also a more direct impact on the American consumer that they may not even realize is going on. Used to be easy to think, well, Europe's just Europe. Europe has a different model of how they approach these things than we do in the States. They've always had a more regulatory approach. Let Europe be Europe and we'll benefit from having our more light touch approach. But when it comes to these issues of speech and content moderation, oftentimes, particularly the largest platforms, particularly those kind of international superstars that we're very lucky to say are in many cases American companies are finding themselves in a difficult position where they may be adopting a content moderation policy on a more global scale that has to align with complying with these European laws. So as a result, you can have European bureaucrats in Brussels actually in many ways dictating what the experience American speakers have online is. Yeah, and even in more specific ways, we see laws under consideration, for example, in Ireland where it just says if you've posted hatred, incitement to hatred in an undefined nebulous way, people who are in Ireland can be arrested for, for that incitement to hatred. And if you don't turn over your encryption keys and your passwords, they can say, well, we're going to assume you're guilty and we're going to arrest you because you haven't turned over your encryption keys. That right now, in theory, that, that law is actively being considered and almost passed in Ireland. That bill, while in theory it just affects Irish folks, what about any visitor to Ireland? What about the way it could be weaponized against Americans visiting or a professor trying to give a speech at a university or a tech company employee that's doing work in Dublin? There's a ways, ways in which many people around the world could quickly get caught up in the ever-growing amount of restrictions that are in place because those aren't just restricted to you know the Irish or the Danes or whoever else. If you go there on, on, on a trip and someone wants to weaponize these laws against you, you're going to go into jail because you refuse to hand over your reckless memes to the to the Irish police. That's seriously in the cards. Is there any European country that is bucking this trend? And are there any countries that where you have leaders or bottom up movements that represent speech as uh, we Americans understand it? So I think you see sort of a mixed bag. You see places like, for instance, in Denmark and Sweden, whereas Denmark has recently implemented a, a blasphemy law that says you can't harm a religious book. 
whereas Sweden has so far resisted that same impulse. So you do see sort of like where some countries are going down the road of removing and, and censoring more speech. You do see other nations, except like Sweden, which are resisting that sort of siren call to just use censorship as the tool to achieve you know, social harmony, which won't actually work. But that's, that's, that's the, the logic, right? So yeah, you can point to Sweden and Denmark. And I think you can probably look to some other nations as well. But like I said, it's largely, like I said, 78% to, you know, have been negative in the past decade when looking at a variety of democracies around the world. That's, that means that there's some good in there, but it's mostly, mostly bad. With regards to kind of the grassroots or the kind of social pushback against some of these laws, I think it's most evident when you've seen the consequences be very clear to the average user. Encryption being a key example of this. So many people use encrypted messaging for personal purposes that, that they see are beneficial and that they know in their personal use are benign. And then when they hear that the government may be taking that away, you're seeing some of a response. You've seen an awareness around this concern, it seems like, with the Irish law that is being considered. We also saw this when it came to the online safety bill with the debate over encryption as it related to that. We've also seen that in some cases, companies have pushed back, particularly, again, on that encryption piece. And, and we saw this in the UK with the online safety bill when several companies threatened to pull out of the UK market if these provisions weren't revised. And these were not just small players. Some of them were, were large players people are rather familiar with, like WhatsApp. But we also saw companies like Wikipedia really taking, taking a stand and saying this would impact our ability to operate and to provide the services for freedom of expression that we provide. I wonder if uh, the better strategy, and we're getting off topic here a little bit, but I wonder if the better strategy for a lot of these big companies is block us. I mean, especially for a group like Wikipedia to say, look, you don't like it, block us. You take the heat. I mean, this is the approach that, that some social media companies have taken with regard to things like what called link taxes, this idea that companies have to pay traditional media sources for every time uh, that media source is linked online. It's just sort of a transfer from you know, social media companies to traditional media. So it's, there's no real there there. But yeah, you've seen places like, like I think Meta has simply said, OK, we're just going to not allow links essentially on our, pro on our product. And all of a sudden people are like, in Canada, are like, wait, I can't link any articles. And like it's half of the reason you, you post things is you're linking to other things. And all of a sudden that functionality doesn't work. Yeah, well, yeah. What's well, because the Canadian government said you had to pay, had to pay the 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 old school media companies for their for just linking to their stuff. Which, by the way, is a good thing, right? Using social media to get more eyes on your content that should be a good thing. But like I said, that's just a a game that's being played between two parties that want more money for themselves. I think that that's an example of the companies just saying, "All right, you want the consequences of blocking us and requiring certain ridiculous things from us? Let's see how your users." in your country respond to losing access to these products that they really like. It's a sad day if we're talking about countries blocking a platform for speech from their users. I think that's something that for freedom of expression is very sad. We have to think about that in this context, too, while we're talking about the platforms and their responses. Part of what makes this such a concern is how much so many voices, voices that might have otherwise been marginalized, might not have otherwise been heard, 
have been able to use various online platforms, whether it's messaging apps or social media, to get their stories out there, to get their voices heard in a way that you wouldn't have seen in that traditional media age. And one of the great things about the internet is how globally connected it is, how we can hear these stories from around the world. And it certainly should be a concern if we're heading towards a a kind of balkanization of the internet where what's available in Europe versus what's available in the US versus what's available in South America is going to look very different and that we're going to lose some of that global community of expression from it. I don't mean to sound like a lawyer, but it it's awfully convenient, don't you think, Mr. and Sarah, that Europe feels free to pass these laws after decades of a lack, a profound lack of innovation, given the regulatory structures in Europe and a lack of large speech platforms like the ones that are based primarily in the United States. Yeah. So these laws that are being passed very often have provisions that go after very large online platforms. Those platforms are mostly, almost all based in the United States. Our you know, more free market approach has allowed these technologies to blossom and grow in the United States. I mean, EU bureaucrats, I guess, are jealous and they want their they want their control over these products. And that's why these laws are pretty much all targeted at American companies. And the EU does not really have that same sort of that those same companies. It's sad. And it's yeah, it's their way to exert authority over something that they do not own, but they think that they should. But of course, they didn't work for it. And you see some very happy, go lucky bureaucrats who are actively trying to punish these companies. Like as Jen mentioned earlier, it's a sad world when we're talking about these companies potentially being blocked from places like Europe. I know Twitter right now is under active investigation from the EU, and the EU could demand as much as like 6% of Twitter's revenues or something like that, like an obscene amount for just not agreeing to these ridiculous EU laws. It's a bit of a running joke. If I asked you to name a major European tech company and told you you couldn't say Spotify, could you name one? We haven't really seen that innovation in Europe, in part because of their regulatory structure that really made it difficult because there were so many requirements to try and build these kind of companies. Now, there are a lot of other elements that go into this, but Europe has always had this much more precautionary, much more regulatory approach, and they're starting to see those consequences. And rather than seeking to maybe re-examine what those regulatory approaches mean, They are instead looking at regulating more on U.S. companies. Now, there is a little bit of a unique twist that maybe there there is some good news. I always like to add, I'm an optimist and I always like to throw in that one piece of good news. We've seen a very heavily regulatory approach to AI potentially emerging from Europe in the AI Act. But recently, we've seen some countries, notably France and Germany, suggest that maybe they want to re-examine this approach a little bit. Now, one of the interesting things there is that we're seeing some AI development in those same countries. So maybe there is a growing realization of what impact an overly regulatory approach can have to technological innovation. So, so maybe that's my little kernel of, of hope for the future, that, that there may be, be some emergence of, of understanding why the American light touch regulatory approach is part of what's allowed our companies to to develop and flourish. A little bit of self-interest goes a long way in this case, right? 
David and Sarah and Jennifer Huddleston are fellows at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening. 